This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world slash donate or support us through Patreon. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I will be speaking to Anjali Nath Upadhyay. Anjali is academically trained as a political scientist, philosopher, and educator. She is the founder of the grassroots adult education program, Liberation Spring, and host of the decolonial feminist podcast, Feral Visions. A recovered academic, her long-standing curiosities focus on learning and teaching as practices of liberation. Maybe if I'm feeling rage, that merits attention. That means that I know that I'm worthy of dignity and I'm allowed to have boundaries. Anjali holds an MA degree in political science from the University of Hawaii at Manoa with specializations in political theory and indigenous politics, the only program of its kind in the U.S. Additionally, she earned a graduate certificate in international cultural studies from the only cultural studies program in the U.S. that explicitly centers scholarship from the global south. Furthermore, she holds an MA degree from the oldest women's studies department in the U.S., From 2010 to 2014, she was a fellow at the East-West Center in Honolulu. This training combined with a lifetime of organizing, healing, and loving dignity animates Anjali's purpose. It's her honor to support folks in making their impact as good as their intentions. Well, Anjali, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss your incredibly restorative and fruitful life's work. It's an honor. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd like to begin in recognition of this precarious moment we are experiencing, a moment which is both emblematic of late-stage capitalism, as well as piercing instance of clarity in which many are coming to consciousness. So to begin, I'm hoping you can speak to how, while many of us are especially ripe to join in congregation with communities committed to collective liberation, that we must first commit ourselves to radical unlearning. So why is unlearning vital for liberation? 
Well, since we're in an omnicide, it's important that we not waste time, energy, hope, resources, or vitality on false starts. Uh, and so if you ask me, capitalism doesn't monopolize the possibility of being, say, efficient or effective. I support us being incredibly efficient and effective in the service of collective liberation. But the thing is, so many of us are swirling in illusion. Maybe that's lies that our teacher told us us. Perhaps it's propaganda, could be algorithmic biases when we're online. Maybe it's corporate media spin for our loved ones that consume the corporate media. Could just be our oppressive socialization. So then here we are trying to make a difference in the world, whether it's surviving in a crisis or supporting our community members surviving, wanting to be our best selves. But if we haven't addressed all of those illusions, folks typically end up perpetuating them unintentionally, which is totally to be expected when we reflect on the politics of knowing. So the thing about unlearning is it helps us heal our perception. So then when we're together in community and we're trying to vision solutions for ourselves, for our loved ones, we're able to perceive more clearly. And that helps us make our impact more consistent with our intentions. I know much of your work emphasizes the importance of decolonial discernment in liberation pedagogy. And I really resonate with this call in terms of examining where we draw inspiration and source information from. So can you speak to the importance of sourcing or how we can recognize liberation pedagogy that has gone through the process of unlearning versus that which sounds liberatory, but will ultimately commit more harm in the long run? Oof, that's such an important question related to discernment. Uh, and so, unfortunately, if you ask me in a place like, say, the settler colonial U.S. today, there's a real shortage of those kinds of movement educational spaces where we can come together and be deeply decolonial in our discernment. So in the absence of those spaces, folks are doing the best that they can. Maybe they try to do consciousness raising work, but in spaces that aren't very promising. So here are a couple of forms of discernment around that. For instance, if some folks go to passive consumption, maybe they're buying a product, say it got advertised as an online class. So that kind of transaction, it might make business people money, uh, but that kind of monetized commercial space was never intended to get us free. And the thing is, liberatory education is an active process. Or another example would be, say, call out culture on social media, where strangers sometimes are trying to delve into these incredibly intricate topics via tweets, via memes, via comment threads. And those are really recipes for harm, for false advertising, sometimes miseducation. And it's easy for that to be obvious to me as someone who's trained in feminist and decolonial pedagogy for years, someone who's researched those areas profusely as an intellectual, but most people don't have graduate degrees in women's studies. And so that's why it's really important, if you ask me, to focus on audaciously grassroots spaces. So spaces that are not censored by funders, right? Spaces that are not 
solely monetized, but say in the sort of spirit of an amazing organization today, Cooperation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi, supporting a shift from transactional relationships to transformational relationships. So say like in the container of Liberation Spring, a space where we can come together collectively to unlearn, to remember, to imagine, so we can be more decolonial in that discernment. And that's not hidden behind a paywall, right? I don't have some fancy foundation funding, (laughs) no familial support, no savings, no trust fund. And we've been 100% donation-based, pay what you can. No one turned away for lack of funds since the inception of the project five years ago. And that also ensures that the space can be more magnificently honest because more folks are able to come through more expansively. And so then collectively, it's not like we're just isolated in little echo chambers or silos of like-minded folks. Our dialogue and our visioning can be kaleidoscopic. It can be that much more expansive. I'd really like to now orient listeners to the perennial impact of freedom schools and how their legacy informs your own work. So can you speak to the orientation of freedom schools that flourished amidst the civil rights movement, as well as the simultaneous movements that question the objective and authoritarian nature of knowledge production? Totally. Uh, Well, you know, that is such an important sort of context to ground in if we're going to take seriously that pivot that you just invoked. So as people are really deepening their awareness of the crisis that we're in, which are actually multiple intersecting crises, it is non-negotiable if we're going to get free, if we're going to make it through this, to learn with humility from the folks that have come before that have always already known that capitalism is the crisis, right? So what are those precedents, right? Where folks don't only show up if you're paying them and then bail without any kind of relationality or accountability, right? That paywalls, right, can be a sort of barrier to. Um, And so one of the most famous examples of that in the American empire, right, of movement-based education are the freedom schools. Uh, So learning that's done to support collective liberation. So that's directly rooted in care for each other and our principles. So this is also similar to say, the consciousness raising paradigm that came out of the feminist movement in the 60s and the 70s, right? Or say popular education that's come out of social movements too. Maybe some folks have heard of skill shares that have come out of DIY or do it yourself self-organizing spaces, all of these different models remind us of that long legacy of community-based learning that happens over kitchen tables, it happens in living rooms, and then it's actually more accessible to everyday people also. So instead of, say, right, presuming that institutions monopolize education in a way that's absolutely inaccurate, remembering all of these incredibly nourishing examples so that then we can humbly do our part to just carry on that legacy in this moment. When I was thinking about the simultaneous movements that questioned knowledge production, 
I'm thinking about black power movements that were incredibly critical of integration in the United States, raising the point that their communities, children, and future were being integrated into a system that inherently devalued their life, that they would be adopted into a system that would ultimately erase their being. Now, your work not only recognizes the feasibility of alternatives to the academic industrial complex, but it also exemplifies the importance of unlearning. So what is the history of Liberation Spring, if you wouldn't mind sharing that? And how was it started? What is the offering? And perhaps more personally, why did you feel this space was critically important for your community? You know, when I was in a PhD program and sort of on the track to becoming a professor within academia, I was deeply unsatisfied with the sort of lack of intellectual rigor within academic spaces in the settler U.S. And this is in part coming from having this amazing experience over the course of my entire life of being an active participant in different, right, movement-based educational spaces. So whether it was a DIY Skillshare's consciousness raising groups, having documentary nights at a co-op every Sunday night that I lived at when I was an undergrad, right? Doing book studies for years on end and being able to be so animated by the vibrancy of folks coming together consensually, not because they have to for certification, because they care, not just because it's what they were told to do by their family or by their broader culture or sort of socialization, uh, and directly rooted in the service of something that's meaningful in this moment in history. So not, again, just because right we were told that we need a particular diploma to be able to get a career, but unto itself because it is important. And so five years ago, right, after having done a career of work within the academy, but then also always on the side, right, really having my heart in these community-based sites of learning and unlearning that could actually support our collective liberation, um, where people were in it because they cared, not just sort of more for the careerism or because they had to feed their kids and that was the only way they could imagine being able to pay the rent. Uh, I just really saw the way in which, right, that was detrimental to the process of knowledge production, of knowledge sharing, the way that, right, academic spaces and institutions, for sure in the humanities and the social sciences, so the specific realms that I have experienced and personally, uh, weren't holding their knowledge production up to the level of scrutiny, right, of community-based spaces where you're going to hear it if you're making something up about someone, if you're being inaccurate, right, if you're embellishing, right, if you're just kind of tokenizing someone or being extractivist. Uh, and so for me, sure, personally, intellectual rigor is important to me. And so that wasn't satisfying as an unapologetic nerd who is very driven by curiosity. But beyond myself personally, uh, being in an omnicide and pretending at a job, like you're going through the motions that are actually deep or intelligent when you know that you're not actually scratching the surface of the impact that we're capable of, was completely unethical for me. And so I was 
committed to taking a leap to seeing, right, if some kind of grassroots alternative would resonate with folks five years ago. And it did, frankly, before I even left for that PhD program. I remember before taking off, being on a beach once, and one of my dear sisters from college, Nayali, sharing to me, I'm so excited for when you come back from Hawaii and you teach my children what you learned. And so that for me, before even starting this doctoral program, was a form of accountability that meant so much more than, say, advisors on a committee signing off on whether or not I passed a particular project. And so for me, it was in part around honoring our responsibility to one another for someone that was able to work my ass off and access particular spaces, not just kind of hoarding that in a career, right? Getting tenure, being cozy, myself in isolation, but knowing that for those of us that know that we're capable, we can do better than that, right? preparing for this interview, I've come across so many beautiful accounts of what it feels like to learn in community, something that is hard to come by in traditional educational settings. So can you share the importance of reframing the educational setting, the educator, and the student in terms of communal relations? How does intellectual community nourish beyond the formalized academic experience? You know, something that is so incredible about being able to do educational work outside of the academy is, one, we can be unapologetically out of the closet in terms of our values. So, so often in the humanities and the social sciences on campus today, folks are still sort of pressured into fronting as objective in a way that is utterly unrealistic. Uh, So for example, for me to even say, oh, I definitely have values and principles, like I care about consent, decolonization, balance, reciprocity, fairness, and so on and so forth, that would be seen as almost tainting you academically, as if somehow that would mean that your scholarship would be less legitimate or less authoritative or credible. And so to then, right, take education outside of those confines and to be able to be in a space that is more audaciously independent, then we can really go deeply into what's at stake for us in doing this work. Like if you're concerned about your children's water being poisoned and the land 
and the air and the food, then we can pose questions and we can engage in visioning that is unapologetically centering those concerns. And one that is not right, sort of problematically hierarchical, but from a liberatory perspective, if you ask me, right, say in the context of Liberation Spring, I'm not trying to look fancy talking at people, but to me, I see it as an educator as part of my responsibility to support other folks in being able to feel even more of an embodied sense of their agency, their power, their capacity, so that then in all of the spaces that they touch moving forward for the rest of their lives, they'll be able to know what the possibilities and the promises are and potentially really make the most of that, as opposed to, say, in traditional academic settings and other industries where this kind of careerist setup that really centers self-promotion and individualism is so often rooted in people trying to look fancier than other people on a pedestal. It's about their names. It's not about the community. And frankly, also for a whole lot of us, that's totally culturally incompetent. Uh, and so that's also something that's so special about doing community education is really playing with that power dynamic to be able to support people in their body, in their voice, feeling into an expanded sense of their power together. Mm. Wow, so powerful. It's hard to imagine what a different world we would have if our education system was different. I mean, that's an easy way to say it. But yeah, I could imagine people would really be changed if they had this type of care and engagement. Um, well, I'd like to transition to a conversation that recognizes the appeal and pull that conventional academia has upon so many of us. We pursue academia as a lifestyle, a place of respite or engagement, a pathway to meaningful change. And in that process, we pour so much of ourselves into a system that is often hostile and at worst, incredibly traumatic. As someone who has spent a great deal of time in traditional higher education, I'm wondering where you think healing from this trauma fits in liberation pedagogy and community education. Does it go hand in hand with unlearning? Absolutely. You know, I see that healing is absolutely indispensable to everything that we're talking about. And it's also super contextual, right? So healing our relationship with learning is going to look different for different folks. It has a lot to do with our positionality. So we know that some folks were disproportionately told in school that they were gifted, that they were exceptional, that they were special, uh, especially, for example, say the super privileged tech bros in Silicon Valley that partially feel emboldened to act like gods upon the rest of us because of that kind of hubris. So, right, for some of us that create in the realm of the philosophy of race, there's this idea that's called epistemologies of ignorance. And so this entire field, uh, epistemologies of ignorance, 
looks at the way that ignorance is actually cultivated educationally. So very systemic forms of knowing and unknowing within the dominant society, whereby some folks end up becoming deeply ignorant about power, about history, and about most of the planet because of, right, in part, how narrowly limited their curricula was. So those folks might need a little bit of a reality check in terms of humility, frankly. That's a gift that'll keep on giving that'll support them opening up to deepening in awareness, to dilating their perspective. But then other folks might have been stigmatized, pathologized, traumatized in school settings, especially settings that didn't cultivate their potential. So those folks might be holding a whole lot of wisdom and experiential knowledge, but that might not have ever really been validated or recognized in an educational setting, except maybe if someone was wanting to, say, tokenize them, maybe somebody wanted to extract from them. And so for me, it's important to support those participants and acknowledging the awareness that they carry. So there's so much that we could get into here, but both of those currents, alongside a whole lot of others, are at play simultaneously when we're trying to sort of recalibrate what it might feel like to be unlearning and remembering and imagining together. Mm. Yes, I love hearing that. Imagining together, unlearning together. So much power in that. Well, Anjali, I'd be remiss to not bring inaccessibility into this conversation in terms of the for-profit nature of education, as well as the myth that for many, education should have a fixed endpoint. So perhaps I can begin by asking what you see are the greatest ramifications of the corporatization of educational systems and the limitations that it imposes on the cultivation of knowledge. And then how this also severely limits the accessibility of learning, which is to say that it's not so much that people don't want to engage in continued education, but that we've been removed from that space by a profit-driven system. Totally. Uh, So, you know, around knowledge production, something that is so dangerous there is knowledge is not just some other commodity to be sort of stamped out in some sort of industrial assembly line like we're in a factory. But the thing is, especially in the past quarter century in the settler U.S., that is how knowledge has been getting created in the academy, right? Since the academy has become so unapologetically corporatized and neoliberal. And so that's not the same if the so-called commodity in question, right, isn't, say, sneakers, but it's knowledge, it's awareness. And so that distortion there is one that I sincerely invite people to take incredibly seriously. What are the ramifications of that on what we think we know and what we might actually not know? And around that piece in particular, right, related to accessibility, to sort of take it back historically. So in the settler U.S., colonizers mainstreamed these educational institutions that were within walls. And just like, right, say, folks from the U.S. do when they're in this sort of missionary way exporting U.S.-style approaches to education throughout the rest of the planet, and oftentimes with the best of intentions, thinking that they're doing good, 
One of the things that is so harmful about that is the sort of lack of acknowledging what was always already going on. So for example, for me, right, my mother didn't graduate from 10th grade. She had to drop out of school to help my grandmother pay the bills. And my grandmother and my mother are two of the wisest people I have ever had the honor of meeting in my entire life didn't have a whole lot to do with institutionalized education ever. And so since I was little, it was always so fascinating for me to try to figure out how the mainstream and how educational spaces were so unfathomably oblivious to how much wisdom my mother and my grandmother had. So to me, I really invite people to actually kind of flip the script when it comes to any sort of a priori assumption that what's going on on campus needs to be broadened and needs to be more accessible, kind of in the way that you were getting into a little while back when you mentioned, say, towards the end of Dr. MLK's life, he said, right, and I'm paraphrasing, right, I'm concerned that my people are integrating into a burning building, right? So one of these formidable critiques of, right, diversifying the Titanic, so to speak, like if only there were more people of color on the Titanic without realizing that's not the only game in town. That's actually one principal way that diversionary campaigns monopolize our precious attention. So here's specifically thinking that maybe the university is arguably the most important form of education that then can kind of invisibilize earth-based education, right? All sorts of different apprenticeship models and community education that so often might actually happen right, in gardens or beyond walls, outdoors, but that doesn't typically get recognized for its merit, for its importance. Um, And so that's also one of the things that I so look forward to more of our movements taking seriously is sort of cutting our losses with mainstream institutions and really feeling into our capacity as creators to innovate alternatives and to remember what has come before. I was on Liberation's, uh, Liberation Springs website, and you highlight the importance of subsistence farming, seed saving, celestial navigation, and warrior training, just to name a few, while also drawing upon scholars who remain dedicated to centering land-based pedagogy. What is the interdependence between land-based experience, ancestral knowledge, and unlearning? Uh, You know, kind of like I was just getting into so many mainstream approaches to education in the settler U.S. today are deeply disconnected from the earth. So for example, that might look like this major agenda afoot that's, if you ask me from a, say, water protector perspective, deeply misguided around educational technology that, and I'm sure you may be familiar with this, right, is trying to get gadgets in front of more privileged children. But that agenda is so often right? Not particularly holistic. What do I mean by that? So for one, say, it's usually silent on the question of the child labor that's producing those gadgets. Two, it's 
particularly sort of silent around the environmental toll of mining, the so-called rare earth minerals for the gadgets to be created. Uh, it's not particularly aware of or concerned about the carbon footprint of data consumption. Uh, so again, not the most sort of holistic or full spectrum agenda or awareness by any stretch of the imagination. And while there's definitely room for right certain forms of educational technology that involve devices around questions of accessibility, right, that we do need to take quite seriously, if we're going to heal from ecocide, we've also got to talk about that kind of ecological illiteracy in education, right? That sort of jumps to, right, tech is saving us or say a plant identification app saving us without acknowledging, no, there's actually no bypassing, taking it back to the seeds, taking it back to farming, right? For so many people, right, say if you do live through a crisis with food shortages, so whether it's say when I was in Honolulu for graduate school and there were tsunami warnings and I would go to the grocery stores and I would see empty shelves, right? Especially for a lot of folks in particular areas, especially urban or suburban areas in the US, if maybe they've had the privilege to not be used to that, Here's one of those forms of ignorance that I'm talking about. They might not realize how important farming is. But then when you experience that kind of crisis, you realize, ooh, actually, a lot of those apps were optional, but food sovereignty is not optional. That's a need. Some of those other things were actually wants, right? Uh, or celestial navigation. For so many of us ancestrally, that kind of orientation knowing where we are in both time and space based off of our relationship with the stars and with other celestial bodies is one way that we can remember with humility these incredible intellectual traditions of our ancestors that are rooted above and below, right? They don't involve appropriation. We all, right, ancestrally had a relationship with land, right, and with the cosmos that we can draw upon for sustenance right now. And so it's incredibly important to me if we're really going to take seriously a decolonial take on education, a feminist take on education, uh, that there's absolutely no bypassing, having a very different relationship with the earth than we do right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to stick on this topic, I'm wondering if you could discuss a little bit about how we can't solely romanticize land-based pedagogy, either when those across the globe who embody this are consistently on the front lines of violence. Absolutely. So, you know, around that, for example, uh, in the context of this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, it has been really unfortunate to have to witness so many folks in communities that sort of consider themselves conscious communities realize oh, we're not even close to being able to sustain ourselves, right? Like if we actually got intentional about food sovereignty, those herbs that are on my windowsill right now are not going to cut it. Like, have we even thought through like, what is the caloric value of what is in our garden? And have we actually devoted our time and our energy and our creativity and our resources in a way that can be more self-determined, right? That is not rooted in 
industrial extraction a la these forms of right neoliberal economic policy that are decimating so many of our loved ones and families in the so-called global south right to benefit consumers principally in the so-called global north that are actually many of them waking up to right now uh similarly in some ways quite vulnerable because of, right, this sort of capitalist configuration of social relations. And so that's also part of what is so important in this moment of awakening is not just being very cavalier in talking about our relationship with the earth in poetic or in romantic terms, but really being specific, like our lives depended upon it because our lives depend on it. I'd like to ask you about the importance of both questioning legitimacy in academia, as well as the necessity to create something beyond critique. From my own experience, I recognize so much of what is discussed in traditional academia is deeply rooted in critique. And while these conversations are vitally necessary and eye-opening for many, I also recognize that many of us become stymied in this process. So do you think it is important that we take our critique into creation And if so, what tools do we need in this process? Absolutely. Uh, It's so incredibly important. And, you know, that is part of why the tagline of Liberation Spring is pulling weeds and planting seeds, because I have observed over the course of my life, so many folks might really valorize one of those projects without understanding the importance of the other. So some folks are super into pulling weeds, other folks are really into planting seeds. But for folks such as myself that were actually raised growing food, both are indispensable. Uh, And so the thing about, right, critique in academic spheres is that especially for folks that are in spaces where I'm just going to name names, post-structuralism and post-modernism are all the rage and are still trending. There's a lot of disproportionate focus within those textual communities, right? Or those forms of meaning making on deconstruction. And it was so funny for me to observe that, right? As I transitioned into adulthood and academia, having spent some time in my youth behind the orange curtain. And what I mean by that is in so-called Orange County, California, (laughs) because I was surrounded in part by hipsters. And I noticed so many philosophical similarities between the hipsters of my youth and (laughs) postmodernists, in large part, right, kind of feeling very cozy on the sidelines, not necessarily creating anything beyond critique, but then upon invitation to share, 
well, tell me what your values are. Tell me what your principles are, right? Maybe some of your deconstruction and some of your critique is on point, but that's not going to feed us at the end of the day. That's not going to support our getting free. And some folks might really sort of cavalierly share as a sort of response, yeah, but you can't expect one person to do all the things. And while that might be the case, if we zoom out and look at the big picture, if we're going to survive and if we're going to get free, we do need to be infusing substantial time and energy and resources and intentionality into visioning what our dreams are. And I especially emphasize that because frankly, right, as someone who has what gets medicalized as chronic post-traumatic stress, so to speak, I know intimately what trauma does to our imaginations, so often it co-ops our imaginations, right? And then our energy can get sort of siloed into catastrophizing and worst case scenarios and just shutting down, right, perceived threats at the expense of imagining the miracles that could be right around the corner if only we were in a space to be able to perceive them, right? So that moving beyond critique has everything to do with healing our perception, if you ask me. I grew up in behind the orange veil, as you called it. And <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting when people just critique, but then they don't share their values or they're not actually engaged, but it's like an armchair philosopher kind of critique that it's like, where is this coming from? Like your pure intellect, but what what about your experience? How are you actually engaging with the work or with the community? <laughs> I was kind of giggling to myself thinking about all of my <laughs> own past experiences there. Totally. Um, in your bio, you mentioned the importance of distinguishing impact from intention. So I'm curious to hear how, as an educator, you find the balance between creating a safe and regenerative learning space while still pushing students to move through the very thorny conversations and introspection that's required. You know, how can we prepare ourselves and each other to have challenging discussions? You know, there are just so many wide open possibilities in that realm pedagogically that it's such an honor for me to be able to support folks taking more seriously. So one of the things that, say, in the context of Liberation Spring classes, I really centralize at the outset of every single circle uh, is a commitment to unwavering honesty and would you know that for so many participants, it is such a relief to know that you're able to be real. And so I know that in a lot of sort of say, especially, and again, I will name names because their survival is dependent upon it to keep it real, um, diversity and inclusion, sort of liberal multicultural spaces, there's been this form of storytelling that has gotten sort of concretized within so many people's imaginations that shit's about to get really hard, right? There's a focus on difficult dialogues and people are almost bracing themselves, right? For some oppressed peoples, like I'm about to be extracted from, I'm about to be expected to, right, kick down exhaustive amounts of, right, intellectual, political, ethical, emotional labor. And then more privileged folks or that might not be as versed in some of these realms are almost sort of masochistically and 
anticipatorily right apprehensive. And so I entirely sort of flip the script and pivot the entry point into this kind of transformative work, right? In part through centering the miracle that is truthfulness and a commitment to honesty, right? And tapping into the pleasure of curiosity, right? Because so, especially as someone that does have a few graduate degrees, it has been astounding to me to witness, right, on so many campuses, how normalized it is for folks to presume that learning is going to be painful. And I know that there's a lot of unnecessary masochism within colonial societies, totally to be expected. But the thing is, for me, since I was little, right, I kind of jokingly said, right, I've always been an unapologetic nerd. I have a deep embodied sense of how pleasurable learning is, right? How delicious curiosity can be. And so that's one of the things, right, that I seek to sort of curate a journey into for participants is to reconnect with, right, when we let illusions drop, right, when we let pretense and performativity subside, how nourishing it can feel to just tap into whatever is underneath some of right that kind of half-truth, mistruth, stereotypes, generalizations, right? For some people, it might feel like scary for a minute because they're naming they're afraid, right, of all of the unknowns that we're sitting in in this moment. But what's on the other side of naming that fear and being witnessed in it? For so many folks, it is, right, a deep sense of equanimity. Like, you mean I'm not the only one that's feeling that and we can come together and actively integrate that into our process instead of letting that fear, say, be very deftly manipulated by forces because we felt like we couldn't just keep it immensely real together and go there. Uh, so those are a few of the sort of things among many that I play with pedagogically to really sort of... Uh, move beyond the kind of formulaic script that talking about liberation is going to be painful and it's going to be hard. Because when we focus on that narrative, we miss out on, and participants know this very well, the deepest laughter and playfulness and wonder and awe that is also a part of getting free the last time I checked. I'd really be remiss if I didn't bring early education into this conversation, as I think this is a conversation that will resonate with many parents and aunties and uncles and all of us who are caring for the young ones. So to take this to where it really begins, can you speak to perhaps the importance of localizing education versus the depersonalized academic industrial complex? Why is place-based education so important, beginning with child learning, where we're first exploring our curiosities and the world around us? What is normalized in these formative years, and how does it impact our experience with education as we grow older? So first off, you know, there is this notion among so many adults about sort of returning to the wild in a way that 
takes as a given for so many of us that we have been domesticated, so to speak, right? We have been socialized and enculturated in ways that might not have been beneficial for us, for the planet, for all of our relations. And so the thing about century and early childhood education is that reminder that it didn't have to be that way. And so I have a podcast, it's called Feral Visions, and I appreciate playing with the word feral and the notion of ferality because, right, say a feral cat is a cat that was domesticated and is now in the process of undomesticating, right? Is getting free after a state of domestication. And so we have dozens and dozens and dozens of Liberation Spring participants that are youth workers, right? That are teachers uh, in elementary school, but also that do therapeutic work with kids and arts-based programming with kids. And something that I cherish that they bring up consistently in our circles is the idea of supporting children so that they'll never have to be feral because they weren't domesticated to begin with. And so that for me is something that, especially say when parents come through Liberation Spring, right, and other folks that care deeply about children, I totally see it as my responsibility to uplift their intuition when they're like, I don't know about all of this, you know, video game learning and the like, I really want to support, right, the cultivation of my children's intuition and their instinct and their emotional intelligence and their relationship with place and their relationship with their curiosity, like you were just speaking to. And so it is incredibly, incredibly important, if you ask me, to affirm that piece around keeping it context dependent, right? Situating our pedagogies attuned to the people that are right in front of us. I do that with every single circle of participants that are adults in Liberation Spring, but also for children, not sort of cutting and pasting some formulaic model, but rather really respecting whatever subtle, little, intuitive noticing might be taking place is really what's up if you ask me. Yes. Yes. Thank you for taking the time because I know it is extra time to really relationship build and to really see people and acknowledge them while learning rather than just forcing everybody into the same box that we know doesn't work. We know that at this point, people learn differently. People have more needs to reach for their curiosities than what we're offering. And it's just really sad and disturbing how little I don't want to say energy because I know there are a lot of great teachers out there really trying hard within a system that doesn't give them a lot of support, resources, uh, leeway to be able to serve the students in the way I know they'd want to. But it's, yeah, it's a very messy and complex system in terms of the, the younger education system. So thank you for speaking to that. And Anjali, I'm sure at this point for the wild listeners are really curious about learning more about Liberation Spring and the courses you offer. From what I've seen, there is an incredible offering ranging from courses on the politics of madness and sanity to techno skepticism and the perils of 
the self-help new age industrial complex that promises us transformation through consumption. All of these I already want to sign up for. So as we close our conversation, I'd love to ask you how you cultivate your courses, what topics are especially important, and what education is essential at this moment? So, you know, it is in part exactly like we were just talking about, necessary for me to be directly responsive to what the community that I am in relationship with is asking for and needs. So that is one of the principal sort of decision-making processes uh, that I take quite seriously in course rotation. Uh, And it's also intuitive. And so it's funny because for the past couple of springs, I've offered this course, Our Spirits Ourselves, that you were just alluding to, that really supports discernment amidst the sort of right mindfulness and new age and self-help industries, helping people understand how they're actually forms of disaster capitalism. Uh, and so this spring, multiple participants were so excited to take that class a second or a third time and to have some of their buddies come through. Uh, And even though multiple people in community were asking for that, I actually had an intuitive sense that we needed to talk about revolution this spring. And so actually, I shared with folks, some of whom were initially disappointed, you know what, I actually am going to hold off on that for the time being, because I have a sense that we need to come together to talk about revolution in the spring of 2020. And so sometimes it is my responsibility, even if people share certain asks, to really honor the information that's coming through for me through that channel. And so it's a bit of, right, community requests, what I can anticipate would be supportive for folks and then what I'm receiving intuitively. And around what is most necessary right now, one of my most humble encouragements to folks would be as you're determining what you're going to allow to influence your consciousness, to remember that your attention is precious, to remember that your mind is to be cherished, and to remember that we're not blank slates, we're not in some neutral place to be able to move out from, but to really center the kind of unlearning and the kind of deconditioning from propaganda, from corporate media spin, from colonial educational systems, possibly from our socialization or familial enculturation, to then be in a place to excavate the curiosities that might have been dormant. And so before jumping into something that I know a whole lot of our loved ones do of, right, piling on what always already exists, instead doing a little bit of decluttering and a little bit of, right, reorientation so that then we can get in touch with right? Maybe our instinct, maybe our intuition, maybe for some folks that are super into emotional intelligence, they might be well advised to heal their relationship with critical thinking. That also supports our collective liberation, right? I mean, who and what benefits if we don't know how to critically think, right? And who and what doesn't benefit, right? If we're not really versed in critical thinking. So as we're trying to heal our perception 
so that then we can support collective liberation, really recognizing that that is a holistic project. It's not just about somatic awareness, right? Like to hell with the mind, it's all about my body. That's still kind of binaristic, right? But really striving to be able to have the utmost respect for all of our awareness and in integrity. Oh, Anjali, this has been such a eye-opening conversation. All of the intellectual and emotional labor that you have put into your work and your discernment and your passion. It's been so <laughs> uplifting to talk to you today. It's been an honor. And uh, one of the things that I so sincerely pray and hope that your listeners will take seriously is that deep respect for our fullest capacity to know. So say in a moment in history such as this, where unfortunately there can be so much shaming of unpopular feelings. So say maybe at a superficial level, confusing fear with fear mongering. So some folks that might have really lovely intentions telling people to not feel fear, right? This classic sort of FDR quote, the only thing to fear is fear itself. But that unfortunately kind of misses our ancestors wouldn't have made it were they not deeply in touch with their fear. To give thanks for our animal instinct that supports our discernment to be able to enable us to survive. That's the gift that'll keep on giving that will allow our descendants to be. And so not shaming feelings, similarly honoring critical thinking, similarly having the ut most respect for intuition and instinct and being open to perceive on all of those fronts in community and hopefully as expansive of community as possible. Because when we get in silos or echo chambers of folks that mostly say, listen to the same media outlets or listen to the same self-proclaimed thought leaders and so on and so forth, that can be dangerous. And so I so sincerely hope that folks will honor whatever is coming up as a part of their process, as opposed to say repressing it or suppressing it. And if they are being influenced by folks that are say, telling them to keep calm in a way that could actually be deeply counter-revolutionary, to be frank, to recognize, oh, maybe actually there's something in my fear that I might actually want to respect. Maybe if I'm feeling rage, that merits attention. That means that I know that I'm worthy of dignity and I'm allowed to have boundaries. And so, for example, if there are certain people speaking very loudly that say we should sacrifice folks that are older or immunocompromised for the sake of money, recognizing that any kind of fury or indignation that emerges is definitely worth revering. It's not something to be repressed. It's not something to be suppressed. And that, right, when we repress fears, instinct, intuition, leaves us in an unhonest, right, ungrounded place that can make ourselves much more vulnerable 
to manipulation. And so I really just want to close out with the sincerest invitation to listeners to have the utmost respect for truthfulness in this time. Well, Anjali, thank you again. And I can't wait to see what your spring classes will be. And we'll keep everybody in touch with what's going on with you through social media and our website. So folks, to learn more about Anjali, please visit their website. Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Wild Podcast. The music you heard today was from Amara and Zena Carlotta. I'd like to thank our host and founder, Ayana Young, as well as the rest of our team. Ada McRae, Andrew Stores, Erica Ekram, Aaron Wise, Cardinal Lou McElroy, Chris Hudson, Francesca Glassbell, Hannah Wilton, and Melanie Younger.